Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the Word of the Lord. Well, I trust we've all seen at least some of the superhero movies where all is lost, no chance of pulling it out, and then comes the superhero onto the scene And he sort of reaches in and snatches victory out of the jaws of defeat. And and I think the reason stories like this are so popular, indeed, if you look through fiction throughout human history, I think you could say the reason stories like this have always been so popular is because in so many ways, stories like this are hardwired on the human soul. And I would suggest that the reason that things like this are hardwired on our souls is because such stories really point us to the ultimate story, the ultimate rescue that every single one of us deep down know that we really need and that in fact God provided for those who believe. And this is what we're going to dig into this morning. So I want to start with a quick review of what we covered last time. Uh, You'll notice on your outline that we've got three points this morning. The first point is review, why we needed salvation. The next two are really our focal point, why God saved us. And the third point is what God did. So two whys and a what this morning. So let's reread Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, and we'll look at the first why. Let's be reminded why we needed salvation. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." When we consider the overarching storyline of the Bible, we know that God created everything and we're told that everything was good. God created 
Adam and Eve, that first man and woman. And in his own words, he says it was very good. But we also know that it didn't take long at all for the very good to go very wrong. In just the third chapter of the Bible, Satan comes into the garden guised as a serpent, and he, and he tempts Adam and Eve to de-God God. He tempts them to doubt the goodness of God. He tempts them, in fact, to put themselves really in the place of God. And they did precisely that. They stood in that horrible moment as though they were somehow judge of what God says as though they somehow got to make the decision as to whether what God said is good or not. And they decided in that moment that it was not. And in that moment, thus, they rebelled against God. And in that moment, they sinned against God. And in that moment, everything went wrong. Sin entered into the world. Death and judgment entered into the world. And in fact, that one moment affected the entire human race. For as Paul says in Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we certainly see this in Ephesians 2. Because of Adam's sin, let's make sure we're clear, every single one of us were born dead. We were born dead spiritually. We were born spiritually depraved. Remember Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And let's be clear, that is a state that one cannot rescue themselves out of. Just as you wouldn't expect a person who's dead physically to sort of resuscitate himself or herself from physical death, so we should not expect one who's dead spiritually to somehow bring themselves to spiritual life. In fact, Paul puts more flesh on this to drive this home even further because he tells us that those who were dead spiritually, which again is all of us, those who are dead spiritually are slaves, slaves specifically to the evil triumvirate of the world, the devil, and the flesh. The world that's under the control of the devil tells us, tells those enslaved how we should think and how we should act, and our flesh says, ooh, I want that, I need that, that's what I want to do, that's what I will do, and as a result, we all, again, every last one of us, stood under the righteous wrath of God. And we were all staring God's judgment right in the face. See, that's the superhero moment, isn't it? This is that moment where all is lost. Absolutely, positively, no hope at all. All is doomed unless someone so much greater can come and rescue us. Unless that happens, at this moment, we're up the proverbial creek without a paddle. But so beautifully, this is precisely where God steps in. Look at verse 4. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. 
and, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the middle of verse 5, there's that parenthetical statement where we're told, by grace you've been saved. And, and I point that out here just because we need to be clear that biblically speaking, salvation is always salvation from judgment. It's never salvation from a mediocre life to an excellent life or anything like that. It is salvation from the wrath of God. And verse 4 then tells us why. Here we see why God saved us from the judgment we all deserve. Here it's as though we get to look through a, a, a tiny little peephole into the inner recesses of the throne room of God, and we get to see at least a taste of why God would ever save rebellious sinners like us. In light of the distressing plight of humanity, in light of our spiritual death and spiritual slavery, here we see a brilliant ray of hope. Don't miss the first two words of verse 4, but God. I would submit to you those are two of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. Because you were dead. Because you were a slave. You were under God's wrath. But God. But God. Who in his very being is rich in mercy. Please, please, please pay close attention to the exact wording of this text because it comes off the same way in the original Greek as it does in our English translations. But God being rich in mercy. Did you see that? Please set your eyes on that. Don't gloss over that. God in His very being is merciful. Because of who He is, holy, righteous, and good, we know He has wrath. He wouldn't be good if he didn't punish rebels. We know that. We talked about that last time. But don't miss here that in his very being, part of who he is in essence, is merciful. If I were to ask you what is the most foundational statement of who God is in the Old Testament, what text would you tell me? What text would you say is picked up all over the place throughout the rest of the Bible that gives us a glimpse into the nature of of who God is. I'll tell you, the text is Exodus 34. I want you to turn over there with me. While you're turning there, let me say a few things about it by way of context. This is right on the heels of that horrible golden calf incident. The people of Israel had been saved, rescued by the grace of God out of physical slavery, and they proceed right on to rebel against Him. And, and, and Moses intercedes for the people, and God says, okay, I won't wipe them out. And right before God renews his covenant with the people, Moses asks, he says, Lord, show me your ways. Even more boldly, he says, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord effectively tells him, Moses, 
No sinner can see me in my unvarnished glory and live. But here's what I'll do for you. I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock, and I'm going to pass by you, and I will, in effect, allow you to see the trailing edge of my glory. And in God's grace, He makes this very thing happen. He allows Moses, and as it's recorded in Scripture, He allows all of mankind to get just a little glimpse of the beauty and wonder and glory of who God is in his very nature. So with that, let me read the passage. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, there's so much we could say about this passage, not least the fact that this passage that's written so far before Jesus really isn't completely understandable until Jesus right? It's, it's not until then that you can understand how God could both punish iniquity and forgive sinners. Now, for our purposes this morning, what we need to key in on from this text is who God is, specifically who He says He is. Don't miss, you're getting His very own words about Himself, and so we want to see how He describes His very nature, He starts with his own covenant name, Yahweh. I am who I am. That's the Lord that's in all caps in most of your translations there. And so he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So don't miss how God describes himself. He is merciful. He is gracious He abounds in steadfast or covenant love. One commentator on this passage says, quote, God does not reveal His glory as the Lord, the Lord, exacting and precise, or the Lord, the Lord, tolerant and overlooking, or even the Lord, the Lord, disappointed and frustrated. He says, no, His highest priority and deepest delight and first reaction is merciful and gracious. And I want us to see how closely tied this is to what Paul's doing in Ephesians 2. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God is, in His very nature, rich in mercy and has great love and saves us by His grace, bringing these very ideas together from Exodus 34. Paul says God is rich in mercy. Little wonder that same Paul would later say in Titus 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to, there it is, His own mercy. God is rich in mercy. 
He is, as it were, a trillionaire in mercy. And in fact, given that his mercy is part of his very nature, this mercy for his own people never runs out. Think about it. If mercy was something that he had, even if he had a lot of it, at some point he could run out of it. But since he is merciful in and of himself, in his very essence, then to show mercy to his people is simply to act in accord with his very nature. God is rich in mercy. And Paul also tells us likewise, in accordance with Exodus 34, that God is also a God of great love. In his excellent little book, Gentle and Lowly, and I encourage you to buy a copy of this, buy three copies, read one, give two away. In his excellent little book, Dane Ortland says, quote, when Scripture speaks of the great love with which He loved us, we must see that divine love is not forbearance or long-suffering or patience. Though God does forbear with us, His love is something deeper, something more active. His love is great because it surges forward all the more when the beloved is threatened, even if threatened as a result of its own folly. We understand this at the human level. An earthly father's love rises up within when he sees his child accused or afflicted, even if justly accused or deservingly afflicted. Renewed affection boils up within. And that is where mercy comes in. He loves us with an invincible love. I love that. He loves us with an invincible love. And as his love rises, mercy descends. Great love fills his heart. Rich mercy flows out of his heart, end quote. Oh, that's so good, isn't it? I love how he describes God's love and mercy working together here in this passage. Again, because God is holy, because he is just, because he is good, he must and he will punish sin. But for those whose sin has been dealt with and punished in full at the cross of Christ, there is no punishment at all left for you. And our God, who is love, pours out His mercy upon us without the anger, without the frustration, or even mild resentment that we're prone to ascribe to Him in our own error of understanding Scripture's teaching about Him. I love what we just sang. What love! could remember no wrongs we have done. He's omniscient, all-knowing, yet He counts not the sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, it's limitless. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Paul tells us that God is a God who is rich in mercy and great in love. He also speaks of His grace here, there at the end of verse 5, in what's really just a parenthetical statement at this point in Paul's argument. It's a parenthetical of joyful exuberance. He just, as if to bellow out, by grace you've been saved. And and, and I'm largely going to skip over this today because we're going to spend the whole sermon here next week when we cover verses 8 and 9. But let me just reiterate that the salvation he speaks of here is the salvation from judgment that he spoke of back in verse 3. 
And here as in Exodus 34, we see then God's love, mercy, and grace all coming together and saving sinners like us through Jesus. And it's to this idea that we now turn. Point number three on your outline. We want to consider what God did. Look back at verses 5 through 7. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He starts back with the idea of being dead in sin. And the timing of all of this is really important. We simply can't miss that God poured out his love, his mercy, and his grace while we were dead in our trespasses. And that dead in trespasses here at this point in Paul's argument is really just a summary statement of everything he already talked about, everything we covered last time. And so you could say, while we were dead spiritually, while we were in the throes of our slavery to the world, the devil, and the flesh, thus while we were living in active rebellion against God, God, in his mercy and grace, not because of any positive movement on our part, God made us alive together with Christ. Remember, dead people don't start breathing again on their own. They don't. And those who are dead spiritually initiate absolutely nothing with God. This is all of love, all of mercy, all of grace. This is putting shoe leather on Paul's statements from chapter 1 where he told us that God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. You had no cognitive thoughts before the foundation of the world, right? This, this is putting shoe leather on the fact that he predestined his people for adoption as sons. This is tied to what Peter is describing in 1 Peter 1 when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice here in Ephesians 2, the union with Christ that's so vital. It's all over this text. God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ. We're going to see next week, all of this is tied to our faith in Christ that, by the way, God gives us. By grace, you've been saved through faith and that not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. And so while all of this does indeed turn on faith, without which no one can please the Lord, that faith, according to this text, is given to us by God. And so if you've ever come to that point when you realized, I am a sinner, I am a rebel. If you came to that point where you recognized Jesus offers salvation from what I deserve. If you come to that point where you've recognized your desperate need for a Savior, if you ever have come to that point where you cried out to God to save you and confessed you believe on Christ and Him alone, and so that all of what He did actually applies to you, if you have come to that point in your life, 
you can thank and praise God for that completely. And let me just say, if you're here this morning and you've not yet come to that point, I would plead with you to ask God, even now, while you're sitting in your chair, ask God to give you the grace to see your sin for what it really is. Ask Him to help you see yourself, at least in some way, how He sees you. Ask Him for the grace to recognize your high-handed rebellion against a holy God. Ask Him for the grace so that you see what Jesus has done on the cross and ask Him for the grace that you might wholeheartedly believe the gospel. And then I would plead with you, dear friend, repent even today. That is, turn from your sin and turn to Christ and believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus is your only hope in this life and the next and be saved, praise God, from the wrath of God and enjoy the glorious benefits this text tells us about. Specifically, enjoy the glorious benefits of being made alive with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Consider first the glorious reality of being made alive with Christ. This means that by God's amazing love, mercy, and grace, everything we talked about last time, everything we talked about last time is wiped out. What do I mean by that? Well, for starters, it means you're no longer dead, right? Jesus, in in, in John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but he has passed from death over into life. Those in Christ are no longer dead spiritually, That's why Paul set up that dichotomy that we talked about last time, right? You were dead. You once walked in your trespasses and sins. You once lived in the passions of your flesh. You were, in the past, a child of wrath by your very nature. But praise be to God, not anymore. That death to death then also means that you're no longer a slave, And while there is indeed still a sin nature, those God has made alive with Christ are no longer slaves to the world, the devil, and our own flesh. Jesus told us this in John 8 when he says, if the Son sets you free, praise God, you are free. Brothers and sisters, I'm not a dancing kind of guy, but this is the kind of thing you come across in the Bible and it makes me want to stand up and dance a jig. I won't do it here, I promise. This is the kind of thing that when I read, it makes me want to shout for joy like my team just scored the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. I mean, how much more glorious is this? This is amazing, but we're not done because Paul goes on. Not only have we been made alive with Christ, I mean, we need to get our heads around this. Here we see in the text that we've also been raised with Christ, and we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And I want to take those two raised and seated together. Back in chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, Paul prayed for us that we would fully embrace What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, listen, 
when he raised him from the dead and he seated him in the heavenly places at his right hand. Here I want you to see that stunningly, like shockingly, Everything here described about Jesus, with the exception of seating it at the right hand, obviously unique to Jesus, but everything else applies to those of us who are in union with Christ by faith. And yes, 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 there's an already but not yet component to what Paul's talking about here, but please notice in this text, his focus is on the already He wants you to see that for those in Christ at a very real level, you have already, right now, been raised with Christ. See this kind of thing elsewhere in Paul's writing? You might think of a text like Romans 6, verses 3 through 4, where Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What is unique here in Ephesians 2, however, is that Paul says that God has not only raised us, but he's also seated us in the heavenly places. And again, this is why expositional preaching is important. This is why reading texts in context is important because the connection with verses 19 through 21 of of, of chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 shows us that Paul is trying to help us understand that not only do believers participate in Christ's resurrection life now, but we also share in his exaltation and consequent victory over the evil powers that he spoke of in verses 2 through 3. And we see that in connection with chapter 1, verse 21, where Jesus is seated in the heavenly places, and look what the text says, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Those words in Ephesians are regularly talking about evil demonic forces. So Christ seated in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And the point here, as P.T. O'Brien says in his excellent commentary on Ephesians, is this, quote, Because believers have been identified with Christ in His resurrection and exaltation, they too have a position of superiority and authority over evil powers. They no longer live under the authority and coercion of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The implications then are clear. Since they have been transferred from the old dominion to the new reign of Christ, they do not have to succumb to the evil one's designs. The power of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, is now available to them as they live in this world, take their stand against the devil's schemes, and struggle against the spiritual forces of evil. End quote. Church, don't miss what this is saying. Paul's telling us, Because we've been raised with Christ, because we've been exalted with Christ, seated with Him in the heavenly places, we are no longer in any way under the authority of the devil or this world. And so we don't have to follow their lead, nor should we. We are new creations in Christ with new life. 
that's been brought about by the Spirit of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, and thus we can and do now live differently from the rest of the world. Or as Paul will say when we come to verse 10 next week, we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We see God's purpose in all of this in verse 7. In short, we can say it's for His own glory. Again, we've already seen this in chapter 1. Remember when Paul taught about the election of grace, God's predestining us to adoption as sons, His qualifying us to share in the inheritance of the saints. He said all of it was for what? For the praise of your glory. Here we see that in the coming ages, God is going to show off the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. I think the plural ages is important here. The marvels of God's mercy and love and grace will resound to His glory not only in our current age, but most certainly on into that final age, into eternity, when Jesus comes again and sums up all things and will be physically raised and seated with Him in the new heaven and new earth. What God has done for us in Christ is a reality now that is stunning and amazing And His glory is on display for all to see right now. But when Jesus comes again, it will be so all the more. When it will be fully seen for what it really is. Where for all eternity, we His people will stand in awe and worship Him. That He pardoned rebels. That He rescued dead men and women. That He freed slaves to a fallen world, the devil and their own flesh. All as part of His masterpiece of goodness. And I want to close considering two things that we must make sure that we really lay hold of from this text. I think these two things work together importantly and beautifully. These two things are for believers... We're no longer slaves. And for believers, there is no doubt at all in God's mercy. No longer slaves, no doubt at all in the mercy of God. First, we're no longer slaves to the world, the devil, and the flesh. We've been made alive. So Jesus said we've crossed over from spiritual death to spiritual life. And for those who have experienced this, our lives are not the same as they were beforehand, period, full stop. This is one of the vital teachings of the Bible that is missing in Bible Belt evangelicalism. There's this misguided teaching that you pray a prayer and sign a card and you're all set with God. But this passage shows us that God actually raises the dead. God gives new life. God breaks the chains of our old slavery to the world, the devil, and the flesh so that they no longer have control of us. We've we've now been crucified and raised with Christ so that we live differently than we did in our old life when we were dead slaves. And church, we have to embrace this. The world, if you're in Christ, no longer has any sway over you. You do not have to do what it says. You do not have to believe its teachings, nor should you, when they're going contrary to Scripture. How about Satan? He'll no doubt try to tempt you. 
but his power has been broken. You're not a slave of his. We must embrace this reality. It's not just here. It's all over the Bible. And yes, for some of us, I'm going to shoot straight. For some of us in here, this might cause you to come to the recognition that you've never truly been born again. Right? If there's never been that place where sin's hold has lost its grip, there's no change besides a mental assent to some four spiritual laws. You might not be converted. And if that is you, I would plead with you, take that seriously. Cry out to God to save you. Believe on Christ today. For others, again, I'm going to keep shooting straight. This may well cause you to think about your own conversion differently. What do I mean by that? Well, if you made a profession of faith when you were six and you were baptized, but you lived like the devil for 15 years, and then something happened in your life, and Jesus became amazingly real, and your life changed, and you start living for Christ, maybe if we understand conversion, and not just four spiritual laws pray a prayer, then conversion happened when your life changed. And I submit that to you. Test it with Scripture. Don't take my word for it. I think the Bible gives us a robust doctrine of conversion. We, the church, have watered it down to something that doesn't resemble what the Bible teaches. You see, when we study the Scriptures, there's no getting around the fact that this text and others like it are teaching us that being alive is categorically different than being dead. Being free is categorically different than being a slave. Otherwise, why would we shout, we're free in a song? Why would that be great? Why would that be good news? We're free. Not really. I'm still a slave, but we're free. No. (laughs) There really is freedom. And we should expect to see such changes. We should expect what theologians refer to as evidences of God's grace in the lives of every single person who is a new creation in Christ. Which does lead to my last point of application, and again, you're going to see how these go together. While we are indeed changed people, and while we must embrace that and live in light of it, while that's true, it would be over-realized eschatology. Okay, that's fun little jargon that you can use around the coffee pot at work this week. It would be over-realized eschatology to jump from here right now to the new heaven and new earth where the sin nature will once and for all finally be eradicated. But we don't live there yet. We know that. We live between the already of Christ's first coming and the not yet of the new heaven and new earth. And here, where we live, while we're no longer slaves, and so while we can fight sin and see great degrees of victory and growth, we do still have a sin nature and thus we will still sin. And this text helps us to see that as Christians... Praise God, we don't have to have the slightest doubt when it comes to God's love, mercy, and forgiveness for His children. See, this text teaches us very plainly and very beautifully that God is, in and of Himself, a God of great mercy and love toward all who believe. Remember, if you're in Christ, His wrath was meted out in full, not in part, in full at the cross. And thus there is exactly zero wrath left. 
for those who have believed. And see, we tend to miss that. We, we tend to be, at times, wrath smugglers. Well, we think He must have at least a little bit of wrath left for us, right? I mean, why wouldn't He? We know our own hearts. At the very least, we smuggle in the idea that He's sort of sick of us. He's tired of our mess that we bring to the table every day. At best, He tolerates us. We're thankful for that. Thanks for tolerating me because I'm a scumbag. And at least tolerating is not casting me to hell. But don't miss that this text is pushing us in a completely different direction. Again, I'm going to quote from Dane Ortland in Gentle and Lowly because he describes this verse so well. He says, quote, That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe the most make him hug the hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more, end quote. Amen. I said earlier, we need to embrace that Christians are no longer slaves. We must embrace this too. We need to believe this. And in fact, I would submit to you that these two implications, no longer slaves, no doubt at all of the mercy of God, rightly understood, come together and lead us into a sweet place of Christian joy. God's amazing mercy, love, and grace spur us on to want to live more for Christ. You don't have somebody offer you forgiveness and you're like, I'm just going to spit in your face now. No. Thus we grow to hate our sin more and more and grow in sanctification. And when we do sin, we don't doubt for a moment that His mercies are new every single day. And so we believe the gospel each and every day. And each day we accept His mercy which leads us to want to continue to live for Him rather than going into hiding for a few weeks until we can somehow in some misguided way work ourselves back into His good graces. Now, see, together, these two lead to renewed love for God every day. A renewed joy in Christ for who He is and what He's done. And a renewed desire to please the Master who loved us so much, whose mercy was so great for us that He sent His Son to die for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Oh, Lord, we pray, help us to believe what's here. We believe, help our unbelief, we pray. Father, would you help us to truly embrace the gospel and live in light of it? Help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this point in our service, we're going to go to the Lord's table. 
And what a wonderful opportunity for us to rehearse with one another the amazing mercy of God. As we navigate through these silly, frustrating little cups, don't let them distract you from the glory of this time together. As we consider Christ's body broken for our sins, as we consider His blood shed for our sins, we're considering together what we just talked about, the amazing, stunning mercy of God. Now, let me just say, if you're here this morning and you're not yet trusting in Christ, we are so thankful that you're here. We would say there's no better place to be than here. And we would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Christ. However, we would say this is the one part of the service we ask that you not partake of with us because the Scriptures teach us that we should not do this in an unworthy manner. And one of the clearest unworthy manners would be to partake of this if we don't really believe this. So this is for those who are staking their life and eternity on Jesus' work on the cross. For believers, I want to just take a few moments to just have some silence, to meditate on what we've just heard, to meditate on the gospel. Wonderful time to confess our own sin to the Lord, but to be reminded of the body of Christ broken for you, His blood shed for you. So let's bow our heads and spend some time just praying to God silently. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ broken for you, take and eat. The blood of Christ shed for you, take and drink. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you that we couldn't, but you did. We thank you that while we were dead, you made us alive. While we were rebels, enslaved to our rebellion, you broke the chains. Father, I pray now as we get to sing in response to this, Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, grow us in our joy and wonder and awe of who you are and what you've done. And I pray that you would help us to live our lives 
in light of this for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.